This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. And following up from the previous, uh, from the previous talk, I'm not going to talk a lot about um, the details of PWS, but I'm going to, I'm going to give you our, from a genetic point of view, but I am going to give you the details from an endocrine point of view, um, as well as thinking about some other disabilities um, where there are endocrine implications for disease. So I have no, um, I have no disclosures. If anybody would like to find me one, please feel free. Um, so today we're going to discuss the endocrine dysfunction that we see in Prader-Willi syndrome um, and the impact of intervention on, um, on those uh, parts of the endocrine system that are functioning poorly. And then we're going to talk about thyroid dysfunction and obesity in trisomy 21 and how to monitor that. Um, and then concluding with an understanding of the indications for growth hormone therapy other than PWS that we see in uh, Russell Silver syndrome and in other genetic syndromes. So I probably don't need to go into a lot of this with, with uh, this audience, but Prader-Willi syndrome is a genetic disorder that's characterized by hypothalamic dis- dysfunction that results in obesity and hypotonia in hypogonadism and other behavioral abnormalities. There are three different mechanisms by which children uh, can develop Prader-Willi syndrome. One is a deletion of 15Q11, Q13, which is what we refer to as a PWS specific region. Um, And the deletion is specifically deleted from the father. Um, If you have a deletion of the maternal allele, it is actually Angelman syndrome, which has some similar features to PWS, but is actually quite different in many ways. You can also have PWS from what is referred to as uniparental disomy. You have both of your chromosomes 15s, but they are inherited, they are are reconfigured so that they look like they are both inherited from your mother. So again, loss of paternal allele. And both of these things have to do with the high level of, um, of expression with differential expression between maternal and paternal alleles um, due to genetic imprinting. You can also have imprinting defects where there's actually an inactivating mutation of that PWS critical region of the imprinting center um, inherited from the father. Um, And therefore, and all of these three will give you the phenotype um, of Prader-Willi syndrome, though there are some differences um, in those phenotypes that tend to run between the various, uh, between the various subtypes. So the natural history of PWS is that in the neonatal period and in infancy, there's reduced fetal movement. Uh, There's a very high incidence of breech presentation because of that reduced fetal fetal movement. Um, At birth, there is severe hypotonia that can lead to apnea and hypoventilation and temperature instability. Children, as a result of that hypotonia, also have significant feeding difficulties um, and subsequent failure to thrive. And in the males, you have cryptorchidism um, and a small phallus quite commonly. In childhood, things start to look a little different. You tend to get an increase in appetite, 
um, you, uh, which is one of the hallmarks of PWS. You will see a developmental delay um, with children usually crawling by more like 18 months, walking by more like 24 months, and speech delays are very, very common in these children. There's also cognitive dysfunction within, in, in uh, one reference, about 50% of children having IQs between 70 and 100, and the other 50 being between 50 and 70. Um, and as a result of the increased appetite and changes in metabolic rate, which we'll talk about in a little bit, they can have progressive obesity. They also have behavior problems that make their hunger and, uh, and, other, dis and other developmental delays um, more problematic, including a tendency toward obsessive compulsive uh, behaviors, aggressive behaviors, and depression. And uh, they also have relative short stature for family. Uh, not quite to the extreme that we see in some other genetic syndromes, but certainly relatively short for family. In adolescence in these children, you see delayed or absent pubertal development. You can see normal or early adrenarche, adrenarche being uh, the production of androgens of male hormones by the adrenal gland, um, continued obesity. And then as a result of the obesity and possibly also some other in inborn um, metabolic complications, a higher risk of type 2 diabetes um, and obstructive sleep apnea related to both the obesity and the, high, and the poor tone. Um, and significant behavioral issues around food will persist. The average adult height um, uh, from data before growth hormone was common in these children had males at about 155 centimeters, so around five foot one or so, and females about 147 centimeters, so more like four foot 10. Um, so significantly shorter than, uh, than average and certainly shorter for family. Um, and they, they have issues with transition to independent living as a result of all of their developmental delays and, um, and the issues with uh, with hyperphagia, with, with the tendency to overeat. Um, this diagram has the nutritional phases that are very commonly described in uh, children with PWS. Um, and you have phase, so you have phase zero, which is prenatal and birth, where, as I said, you get this decreased fetal movement. Um, they tend to have lower birth weight than their siblings. Um, 1A and 1B are, um, are, tend to be in the uh, early years of life. Um, up to about two years of age, where initially you have hypotonia and feeding difficulty uh, with poor appetite, poor suck and swallow, um, and then some progressive improvement in feeding and appetite, and they begin to grow more appropriately. 2A is a really, really interesting phase because you tend to see in this phase an increase in, in weight without an increase in appetite or with a change in the amount of calories that children are taking in. So the way we like to describe this is there's actually a metabolic switch that happens where you have a decrease in metabolic rate, um, making you gain weight with the same amount of calories you were consuming before, even before in 2B you develop the increased appetite um, and, the, and the desire for more food. In 2B, you do have that increased appetite, but these children will feel full. They will turn food away. They will decide that they're full at some point and stop eating. In phase three, which tends to be in the older children and into adolescence and young adulthood, you really do have hyperphagia where children rarely feel full. And, develop, and in terms of management, this becomes very difficult for families 
um, they cannot control their own appetite and therefore you have to have external factors that actually control their diets very closely. In adulthood, interestingly, in phase four, you actually no longer see that insatiable appetite. So a lot of the, the young adults that I have taken care of um, have finally gotten to the point where they actually have maybe a little more appetite than actual, but than most people, but not the insatiable appetite, not that true hypophagia that a lot of them had when they were younger. So the obesity in PWS usually has an onset somewhere, as I said, between the second and fourth year of life when that metabolic switch happens um, before in phase 2A, even before the hyperphagia. So it is a, the obesity that we see over time is a combination of both hyperphagia, but also decreased energy expenditure. So they have a lower metabolic rate um, and therefore a combination of two things that make them obese. One is a need for fewer calories and the other is the desire for more calories. Um, and together that's a, that's a, a very difficult combination. Um, they do have obesity in a different pattern than what we see in uh, what in endocrinology we term exogenous obesity, the people who just tend to eat too much and therefore gain weight. And that is that typically women have higher percentages of body fat than, male, than men do. Um, but in PWS, you actually see the males having a higher percentage of body fat than females. So there's something different about the, about the physiology in these patients from the patients with, uh, with exogenous obesity. And they also have a distribution that is more subcutaneous in the trunk and in the limbs rather than visceral adiposity, which again is more common than what you see in, um, in exogenous obesity. So this is, um, this is the growth chart of one of my former patients with PWS. Um, I say former because I'm, I moved from Boston to Stanford and Somehow my patients decided not to follow me cross country. Um, so I no longer care for this patient, but this is a 10 year old um, and what you 10 year old girl. And what you see is her growth is actually not that bad. So on the left is her growth chart in terms of her height, um, but on the right is her weight. And you can see that even by four years of age, she was already significantly overweight and her BMI would have been well above the 95th percentile even at that point. And she has really progressive obesity where her height is staying, relatively speaking, along the same curve, but her weight is escalating dramatically. And this is another uh, one, of my, one of my patients who, um, who has a similar pattern with weight that is already well over the 95th percentile by four years of age and has a progressive and has a significantly progressive obesity. So why do they, what is there about this metabolic difference in children with PWS? Besides the hyperphagia, there's something else. Um, children with PWS have a lower lean body mass um, so that causes a decrease in metabolic rate and also a decrease in energy expenditure. So again, they just need fewer calories as a result of these things. The decrease in lean body mass and the increase in fat mass um, is actually present in infancy when you study these children, even before they develop obesity. So again, something that is out of their control um, in terms of metabolic rate. 
And when you look at energy expenditure, they have normal energy expenditure per kilogram of lean body mass, but they have a lower lean body mass. So it's not the quality of their lean, of their lean body mass that is the issue, it's the quantity. It's this decrease in, in uh, lean body mass that is truly the issue. Um, so treatment is always the question. What do you do to treat these patients? And um, we can certainly talk about some of the things that are now coming out, and I will a little bit at the end, the, the things that are now coming out in terms of therapies. Um, but the significant therapy at the moment is really severe caloric restriction, that these children require, um, even in adolescence, um, somewhere between 800 and 1200 calories a day. Um, one of my patients who's six feet tall in order to maintain a healthy lean body mass, a healthy weight, um, ate 1600 calories a day at six feet tall. Um, so significantly less than average. Um, and that is really, and so in the younger children, somewhere between 800 and a thousand calories a day is really what they need in order to, uh, in order to keep healthy weight. And as you might imagine, that is extremely difficult for families. Uh, physical activity is compromised by their poor muscle tone and by their decreased lean body mass. There is a role for growth hormone therapy in terms of improving lean body mass. So that's the one thing we have in the armamentarium at the moment. But there are several clinical trials, as I said, aimed at decreasing hyperphagia and or increasing metabolic rate in order to change hopefully at least one, if not both of the factors that really are the cause for obesity and PWS. So here's another one of my favorite growth charts. This is one of my patients um, who, as you can see, is quite tall. Um, he's, uh, he's, you know, he's whatever that is, 75 inches tall. So he's, uh, he's quite tall. And he was, you can tell from the upward red arrows, quite overweight, um, even for how tall he was. And there was a significant change when he was about 16 um, that affected his diet which was that he went from living with his very loving parents um, who found it very difficult to control his diet to living in, um, in a group home where he had significant restrictions on his diet and a requirement for exercise um, and dropped a huge amount of weight and actually got back to a BMI that was, that was fairly normal for him. Um, the little blip up was some behavioral change where he decided to refuse to exercise for about six months or so and had a significant increase in his weight and then went back to exercising and dropped again. So the, um, the rest caloric restrictions and increases in exercise are very difficult for families, but they are very effective if you can implement them. Um, this is another one of my patients who lived with his parents um, and who really, uh, his parents from a very young age were very, very restrictive in what he ate. He ate a very well-rounded diet, but in, uh, but in significantly smaller quantities than, uh, than the rest of his family. And his weight, I actually had to have conversations with his mother uh, several times about him being underweight um, as a result of, um, of his decrease in calories. But so again, it can be done, but it is not easy either for the family or for the, or for the patient. So I said growth hormone was one of the things in our armamentarium for children with growth hormone. And um, the question always is, are these children growth hormone deficient or are we using growth hormone for other reasons? And the answer is yes and yes, or possibly and yes. Um, 
it is unclear how many children with PWS actually have growth hormone deficiency. Um, when you actually look at sort of the standard testing that we use, stimulation testing, and if you look in the literature, um, the incidence of growth hormone deficiency ranges anywhere from eight to about 38%. It probably, again, depends on how you're looking at it and by what criteria you're making that diagnosis. It is hypothesized that patients with PWS have, a blunted, have blunted growth hormone secretion due to their hypothalamic dysfunction, and that might, ex might explain why some of them will fail these standard stimulation tests, but some won't, um, and why there's so much variability in the way we potentially diagnose it. The good news at this point is that you do not have to prove that someone has growth hormone deficiency um, in order to treat them with, P with uh, growth hormone if they have an, a genetically diagnosed, if they have genetically diagnosed PWS. So um, the evidence for growth hormone deficiency, as I said, has to do with low peak growth hormone response to stimulation tests, to decreased spontaneous growth hormone secretion, and to low IGF-1 levels, IGF-1 being a hormone secreted by the liver in response to the presence of growth hormone. That is actually a good way to look at, um, at uh, for, as a screening test for growth hormone deficiency. The question always becomes, is it related to obesity? In exogenous obesity, we do see um, we do see some children with changes in their growth velocity, but in contrast to, um, to exogenous obesity, there's a poor growth rate in PWS, uh, whereas there are normal or increased growth rate typically in patients with exogenous obesity. And healthy children with simple, with simple obesity have normal or slightly increased IGF-1 levels, as opposed to children with PWS who have lower growth hormone. Uh, IGF-1 levels. So what are the benefits? It clearly improves longitudinal growth in these patients. It also improves their body composition. So it, it gives them a higher muscle mass um, and a lower fat mass. It improves their weight management, um, although it's not a quick fix for sure. Um, but when you start to improve their longitudinal growth in their body composition, you automatically improve their ability to manage their weight. It, it, they have increased energy and physical activity, improved strength, agility, and endurance. And it also increases their respiratory muscle forces, which makes exercise easier. And in the very young children um, who have problems with obstructive sleep apnea as a result of poor tone can also, um, can also aid in, um, in improving their respiratory function. So there are a lot of concerns about safety in PWS uh, with growth hormone therapy, the most significant of which is, uh, is an incidence of sudden respiratory deaths that was, that was uh, discovered quite a few years ago now. Um, patients with PWS have an underlying risk of respiratory difficulty because of their poor muscle tone in the oropharynx and the respiratory muscle musculature, as well as their obesity. Um, what we have found over time is that growth hormone may exacerbate that in some cases in that it increases tonsillar and adenoidal size. And so if you already have some obstructive sleep apnea as a result of having large, fairly large tonsils, um, it can make that slightly worse. But as I was saying, in the children who are younger, it actually typically improves their, um, their obstructive sleep apnea because it improves their muscle uh, their muscle strength, and therefore the tone in their orifangs and their, and their uh, respiratory musculature as well. Scoliosis progression is another concern. PWS is a risk factor uh, for scoliosis even without growth hormone therapy. Um, and data and control trials have shown no particular difference with or without growth hormone therapy. Um, the bottom line is that scoliosis can progress 
um, if you are growing rapidly and we are going to make you grow better if we give you growth hormones. So the combination of the low tone and the increase in growth rate can sometimes worsen scoliosis. Um, there's also been concern about carbohydrate metabolism, particularly type 2 diabetes in association with growth hormone therapy. But long-term studies have really found no changes in fasting insulin or hemoglobin A1C um, in patients with PWS who are treated with GH. So there are a few other things that happen with, with uh, Prader-Willi syndrome in terms of uh, endocrine disorders. One of them is a very high incidence of what we call premature puberty. So that is early development of pubic hair and axillary hair. And there are many reports of an increased incidence of premature puberty in PWS. It's felt to be related to premature adrenarche, to an earlier activation of the adrenal glands normal production of, of androgens. Um, and studies revealed an increase in incidence of premature adrenarche with a mild increase in DHEA-S and 17-hydroxyprogesterone compared to controls, uh, both of which are made by the adrenal gland. Um, the etiology may be related to uh, being smaller for age, sometimes being small for gestational age, um, to the hypothalamic abnormalities or to the effects of obesity, although, um, although even if you control for obesity, there's still an increase in, in the incidence of premature puberty in these patients. Puberty and PWS is characterized by hypergonadism. So in the newborn period, that's cryptorchidism or small uh, labia minora, um, normal testosterone or estrogen, but with normal testosterone, estrogen, or gonadotropin levels if you measure them, which most people don't. At adolescence, they tend to have uh, a delay in puberty, or they may have an entrance into puberty at an appropriate time, but a lack of progression. Um, although there are incidents of uh, precocious puberty, uh, relatively early or, or actually precocious puberty in PWS. So you can see everything in the spectrum, um, and it tends to not be um, consistent with either failure at the hypothalamic and pituitary level or failure at the ovarian or testicular level, but some strange combination of the two. So I get asked a lot about the timing of sex steroid therapy in these patients. Um, and uh, what I will say is that I am a firm believer that you should give back whatever anybody is not making on their own. Um, but the timing of that can be very individually based individualized based on, uh, based on the particular patient. You want to look at whether or not they have lack of spontaneous progression into puberty, what their pattern of growth is, meaning that if you're supposed to be progressing into puberty, but you aren't, your growth rate will tend to slow down even if you're on growth hormone therapy. Um, discussions with the family about behavioral change, about how, you know, how people are going to cope with the changes of puberty. Um, and then in some cases, bone density evaluation because estrogen and testosterone are very important for the development uh, of the skeleton and in particular for bone density in the long run. I usually start with very low doses so that we can mimic the normal increase that the body would have seen. We can optimize growth in patients who are still growing, which is the most common thing, and also be out of concern for behavioral change. I will say that I'd see very little in the way of behavioral change um, with my patients that I start on either estrogen or testosterone. So I love growth charts, as you can tell. This is another one of my patients who actually um, was growing, but you can see was sort of falling off the curve here on the um, 
on her in terms of her stature. Um, and then this arrow is Vivel start. This is when she started estrogen therapy. And you can see how well she grew after that point and then got to a very reasonable adult height. Um, she also actually did very well with her weight at the same time while she was actively growing, her weight uh, did not change all that much. And so her BMI, um, she did very well in terms of BMI through, uh, through puberty. So now that you've taught you everything you need to know about PWS, <laughs> not really, but we can continue to talk about it. I want to say a few things about uh, trisomy 21. So endocrine disorders in trisomy 1 um, are more common than in the general population. And specifically, uh, thyroid dysfunction um, and obesity um, and then also auto other autoimmune disorders like celiac disease and type 1 diabetes and autoimmune alopecia. They can also have low bone mass uh, from a combination of factors, including obesity, uh, low physical activity, malabsorption syndromes, anti-epileptic medications, um, short stature, which we know of, uh, which we know is true. Uh, there are more recent, the most recent growth charts for trisomy 21 are from about 2015. So that's good. They've been updated from the previous ones. Um, and infertility is very common, but not always, which is a really, really important thing to remember. So the thyroid dysfunction in, uh, in trisomy 21 can happen in a variety of ways. You can have, uh, you can have congenital hypothyroidism, thyroid, thyroid disorder dysfunction that is diagnosed at birth. Um, you can have autoimmune hypothyroidism, so low thyroid hormone levels, or you can have autoimmune hyperthyroidism or Graves' disease with an excess of thyroid hormone. Um, there's also various uh, forms of subclinical hypothyroidism with minimal elevations of thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH, um, and normal thyroid hormone levels, um, which can sometimes make it a little difficult to decide whether or not to treat. The AAP screening recommendations for patients with trisomy 21 are that they get a newborn screen, which everybody does, um, and then also have their thyroid function testing checked at six months and 12 months, and then yearly thereafter. Um, whether or not you check for antibodies later on uh, is up for debate, but yearly screening with TSH um, or TSH and free T4 is the recommendation from the AAP. Obesity in trisomy 21 is another thing that um, we all know is a problem. Um, and the growth charts for trisomy 21 were updated in 2015. Um, and the good news is that despite an increase in obesity in the general population, there were really no significant changes in the, um, in the uh, growth charts that were developed for trisomy 21. So this population is actually not getting more obese than they were before, which is what's been happening in the general population. In terms of looking at BMI, uh, body, mass comp uh, comp body composition analysis with DEXA shows that children with trisomy 21 have a lower lean, lean mass index and higher fat mass index than is typical uh, for children with the exact same BMI. So they tend to, they tend to have more fat and less lean mass um, presumably related to, uh, to hypotonia. What we suggest and what the AAP suggests is that you use the 95th percentile BMI on the standard CDC growth charts um, to think about, to identify excess adiposity in these children, as opposed, to, um, as opposed to looking at the trisomy 21 charts themselves. 
Um, so I have a couple minutes left. I just want to talk a little bit about other indications for growth hormone because this is a really common question that we get. Um, and now that we're using uh, now that we're using growth hormone for things like PWS for growth, but also for lean body mass, for muscle mass, for other things, there are always questions about what other situations would it be appropriate in what other situations would it be appropriate to use growth hormone. Growth hormone is currently approved for Turner syndrome. Prader-Willi syndrome, children who are small for gestational age without catch-up growth, which encompasses Russell Silver and several other um, and several other related syndromes, um, Noonan syndrome, and then growth and then true growth hormone deficiency. All of those are regardless of you don't have to prove growth hormone deficiency. But then there are other things where there is growth hormone deficiency that is frequently seen, like charge syndrome and other syndromes that involve midline defects. And the way to think about it is anything that disrupts your midline can disrupt your pituitary, which is also in the midline. So when you see children with single central incisors or um, cleft lip and palate or things like that, who also seem not to be growing well, those are those should be triggers for thinking about growth hormone deficiency in those patients. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.